Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling, award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you because Reed is definitely his own man with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy listeners from coast to coast, from the Gulf to Mexico and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Today we are going to investigate the history of the WHO, the World Health Organization. Quite interesting. How it dovetails into the WEF and then how that all dovetails into the prawns that are being directed at you for total control. And of course, then I'll tell you the rest of the story. Last two weeks, we've talked about the WEF history and the WEF interjection, shall we say, of their young global leaders, 3,800 of them, in roughly 150 countries around the world. And then the hundreds of thousands that they've appointed and those have appointed underneath them who think globally and, shall we say, not in your individual best interests. Today, I think we'll tie that in. I'm also going to be giving you a really short list of a really long list of some of the Americans who are part of the WEF. Some of the names will absolutely shock you. And we have posted on the website under the new WEF link on the homepage with a whole bunch of articles from last week describing the WEF, etc., etc., etc. The link from Robert Malone Foundation, which gives you the names of all the WEF delegates and disciples and breaks them out into countries so you can see the entire american list on the rightsideradio.com and then next week is a little teaser because we've been focusing on the united states and to a lesser extent britain and europe i'm going to bring you what the wef is doing to fraudulently control elections minds you know spell psyops outcomes governments and the green new deal leverage in other parts of the world, particularly Israel and Africa. I'll give you a few teasers in the rat-a-tat-tat. We're going to be discussing today, when I'm done with our little who presentation, who, who, we're going to be discussing the beginnings of what I'm going to be bringing you over in the next several months, what you can do about all this, right? I mean, now that you're learning about it, now that your eyes are being opened, or that new facts are coming to light, supplementing what you already knew or suspected, what can you do? And what can you do in concert with others to thwart the globalist plans, to undermine the elitist attempt to deprive you of your life, liberty, happiness, property, and freedom? And then we're going to be bringing you another pretty substantial rat-a-tat-tat because (laughs) there's just a lot to bring you. I'll leave it at that. Let's start off with our founder's quote. I've used this one before, but I think in light of this show and its content upcoming, this is particularly applicable. This is Thomas Paine once again. Quote, a body of men holding themselves accountable to nobody ought not to be trusted by anybody. Unquote. So how about a quick rant story before we begin on the who? You know, I told you the moral of last week's story was not to gloat about being prepared for coming nastiness. But to trust your gut, that was the week before, to get prepared for coming nastiness. So we have cold weather that's come in, snow forecast, nastiness with just a little bit of respite over the next week. So we got busy in the frigid 
and absolutely hellacious winds. Yesterday morning, we got some bales out, we got some mineral tubs out, and we think that we're pretty well prepared. The cows, the horses, everybody seems happy. But I'm going to go back to my moral from last week, and that is I'm not going to pat myself on the back this time. I'll give you an update next week. Now, let's get into serious business. So let's begin with our current friends at the Who. Where did they evolve from? Well, let's go back to France and Europe in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. France was concerned. They began this process of kind of health agencies and then interlinked health agencies and then regional health agencies. In fact, there were 20 countries kind of enrolled in this fairly loose-knit association of the European quote-unquote health agency by the late 1800s. And additionally, that inspired the Pan-American Sanitary Organization, also known as the Pan-American Health Organization, or PAHO, in South America. And then came World War I, and the League of Nations was formed after that war, and it promptly formed ah, the League of Nations Health Organization, the LNHO. And they used as the foundation, as the fear to create this new organization, typhus in Russia, cholera, smallpox, typhoid in the Ottoman Empire, and they were empowered in the League of Nations Covenant to, quote, take steps in matters of international control of disease, unquote. In April of 1920, there was a League-sponsored conference, France, Great Britain, Italy, Canada, Japan, and the United States, which, by the way, not long after that, opted not to become a member of the League of Nations. Gee, we were obviously more intelligent then than when we were invited to join the United Nations now. And the League promptly created what was called an epidemic commission. Is this kind of sounding like vaguely familiar? But even though America was not part of the League of Nations, and therefore really not part of this burgeoning World Health Organization, there were many leading Americans involved. A. Winslow of Yale University, Alice Hamilton of Harvard University. Once again, you know, the academics folks, because they know best. The League's health organization was then split into two agencies— One kind of focused on giving out virology and epidemical information, and the other more the executive function of this fledgling international health body. And you'll laugh when I give you the comparative figures now. But in 1933, right, this is 13 years after its formation, the staff of the two agencies embodied within this League of Nations health deal had grown to 18 technical officers and 35 administrative individuals, along with 100 kind of assistant administrators and assistant science research centers. A guy by the name of Ludwig Rashkman, that's R-A-J-C-H-M-A-N, kind of became the, the head of the outfit, if you will. And around that time in Britain, the Ministry of Public Health was created. Other countries did the same. That Ministry of Public Health, by the way, for you Americans in the know, and you folks over there in the UK who listen to the podcast, has become your (laughs) not-so-functioning, oh-so-well national health system, the NHS. Rashman, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, also kind of organized other areas of interest of the fledgling health organization. The standardization of sera, serological tests, international biological standardization. In fact, along with a guy by the name of Madsen, they began to work together to promote kind of a standardization of all these health sciences and health information dissemination formats and statistics. And this is the beginning, way back then, 
of the one-size-fits-all that you saw so ineptly and intentionally misapplied during the recent COVID conjure. By the way, Rashman was a big fan of the Rockefellers and the Rockefeller Foundation, and he began to court them in the late 1920s or so, actually a little bit before that, for money. Hmm. And in fact, it was their funding that kind of put the nail in the coffin, no pun intended, of this one-size-fits-all statistical quagmire which has simply grown and then exponentially exploded with the computing age. And that was the Rockefellers gave money to the League of Nations to hire an American epidemiologist and statistician, a guy by the name of Edgar Sidenstricker, S-Y-D-E-N-S-T-R-I-C-K-E-R. It was this man, an American, financed by the Rockefeller Foundation, that transformed Rockman's aspirations to quantify and centralize all this data and dissemination of the data into kind of tangible data sets and publications. With its foot in the door, the Rockefeller Foundation and several other globalist types began contributing more and more money. In fact, between 1922 and 1934, the foundation contributed $2 million to the operating budget, paying the salaries of 25 of the 53 staff over the course of that time. Remember, folks, $2 million back then was, uh, you know, probably a billion dollars now. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Rockefeller also began to fund support for non-European undertakings, the Far East, South America, etc. And then he began to fund, along with other globalists, beginning in 1932, when a delegate from India, along with the Chinese delegate, proposed a conference on rural hygiene. And now the tentacles of the League of Nations Health Organization, financed by the world's globalist and elite, began to spread into the rural areas of a number of continents. And look, never let a crisis go to waste. So a lot of the expansion of the reach and the power and the statistical, shall we say, centralization of health statistics and what to do with them and how to control people relative to those statistics really began to burgeon in 1932 because of the depression. You know, never let a crisis go to waste. And then with World War II looming, Hitler ascending to power. Rockman was forced to leave as the head of the organization in 1938. The other head mucky mucks of the LNHO, the health organization of the League of Nations, including a gentleman by the name of Stampar, an LNHO advisor, René Sand, and Jacques Parousseau from France, also had to flee Europe, or in some cases were captured by the Nazis and actually put in concentration camps. The LNHO, right, the health organization of the League of Nations, was officially neutral (laughs) by virtue of headquartering in neutral Switzerland. But behind the scenes and clandestinely, the remaining high muckymucks, those that were not in exile, locked down in concentration camps, began to forge alliances with the United Kingdom and America and the Allies. One of these so-called health exiles, a guy by the name of Gautier, G-A-U-T-I-E-R, moved to London to escape the Nazis. And in March of 1943, he wrote an 11-page confidential, quote, international health in the future, unquote. This, folks, was the beginnings, and it contained an outline of a future, quote, supranational health agency that would take the initiative of intervening in emergencies without governmental request, unquote. Ah, now we see the real seeds of the modern-day WHO and their pandemic treaty, which we're 
going to talk about here in just a moment. And of course, as the war was winding down, the globalists saw their opportunity, right? Never let a crisis go to waste. And here comes the Rockefeller Foundation again. And another elitist foundation, the Milbank Foundation. And they agreed on two principles. The need to build an international health system post-war and the importance of the United States to convene as soon as possible a conference on world health. And it was out of this conference, folks, that the World Health Organization would be born in 1948. And when it was formed in 1948, the WHO had a constitution, so to speak, and they obtained enough signatures of governments to bring it into force. In fact, the Pan-American Health Organization, we talked about them previously, South America's health deal, they became one of WHO's six regional organizations. This has now morphed into, shall we say, sub-WHO's, little WHO's, mini-me's. The Pan-American Health Organization, the Regional Office for Europe, the Regional Office for the Western Pacific, the Regional Office for Africa, the Regional Office for the Eastern Mediterranean, and the Regional Office for Southeast Asia. Oh, just kind of warms your heart, this degree of organization. And gee, does it call to mind something I was bringing out last week, discussing how the Who's tentacles have spread around the globe and infiltrated governments by their own words and their own admission? Oh, yeah. It's kind of the same structure that the WEF has. Hmm. I wonder where they got all these ideas, because it was right around this time, folks, that the WEF began to should we say, emerge as a gleam in the eye of Klaus Schwab and other folks who now run that. The first World Health Assembly, by the way, of the WHO, met in Geneva in the summer of 1948. The organization had, now listen to this, this is 1948, a budget of United States dollars, $5 million, $5 million. The WHO began with 55 member states. It now includes 194 member states and two associate members, Puerto Rico and and it was these member states, including the first 55 back there in 1948, that formed the World Health Assembly. That supposedly sets WHO policy, approves and supervises its budget, and elects its director general to lead WHO for five-year terms. By the way, the budget is set for two-year periods. Do you know what it stood at for 2018 and 2019? Remember the five million back there in 1948? 6.3 billion dollars folks 6.3 billion dollars the money comes from dues and voluntary contributions from member states and ngos oh there they are again you know like the bill and melinda gates foundation and the rockefeller foundation and rotary international and the beat goes on as they say by the way the who also quick to capitalize on emergencies you know never let a crisis go to waste raised an additional 675 million dollars for its covid response oh well that was successful wasn't it and the after the fact science in fact the at the time science proved it kind of should we be kind and say intentionally upside down Let's talk about your family's safety. If you listen to this show, you know our aging power grid is more vulnerable than ever. There's been 70 physical attacks on grid stations and countless cyber attacks in the last year. Imagine a blackout lasting days, weeks, months. Look around your house. Water, refrigeration, heat, light would be poof. That's why having your own portable solar power and not relying on a government grid is critical. With a Patriot Power Sidekick from 4Patriots, you get a solar generator that's quick, easy, portable, on the go, or even inside. And though only the size of a lunchbox, it's powerful. 
It'll power your phones, your medical devices, even a mini fridge. A free solar panel, free shipping, and a practically unheard of 365-day satisfaction guarantee. You can get 10% off your purchase using the code RIGHTSIDE at checkout. FourPatriots.com. Use the code RIGHTSIDE. Get 10% off. FourPatriots.com. Protect you. Protect your family. Who now has a staff of 7,000? Remember back there, folks, when it was 53 people? And that includes scientists, medical doctors, public health specialists, and experts in economic statistics and emergency relief. The agency is now headquartered in Geneva, and it has offices in more than 150 countries around the world. Oh, gee, you mean kind of like the WEF. Hmm, just a coincidence, of course. By the way, the current director general, the gentleman by the name of Tidros, Gebrecius, and I probably mispronounced that, but that's okay. We'll just call him Tito. Tito is a former minister of health in Ethiopia. That's why I think you'll find this African stuff that I'm going to bring you next week and Israeli stuff. What's happening around the globe, not in the United States, because it all has the same tactile feel, folks. And that is not an accident, as will be clear. I'll give you some teasers in today's show. But anyway, our buddy Tito, a good friend of Red China, of course, is a former minister of health in Ethiopia. He's the first leader from Africa. Okay, well, we got our quotient done, I guess. And it's first director general who is not a physician. He has a PhD in community health. He started his term in 2017. And unfortunately, he was reelected in 2022. There's a guy by the name of Michael Ryan. He's the director of WHO's Health Emergencies Program. You know, think covid botch up, folks. And he summed up recently the organization's, quote, overreaching mission. I quote, the mandate we have is to establish global standards and to give strong advice to countries regarding rational public health measures, unquote. Now, folks, that sounds kind of peaceful and nice and warm and fuzzy. But who wants everyone to sign on to a pandemic treaty, which basically gives them the powers of your sovereign country or sovereign state or sovereign county? But then we have the rest of the story. Okay, so we're, we're pretty well set now after the PSYOP stories and the WEF stories and the history of the robber barons over the last six months. I think you have the picture. This is a four-pronged assault on you and your rights and your freedoms and your property on the Constitution of Faith, Family, and American values. In fact, the values of freedom from around the world over, as we'll get into here in the rest of the story. And you have big business with its ESG and its greed. You have governments, which have the force of quote-unquote law, trying to impose edicts and mandates. And then you have the mandates and the edicts promulgated by the WHO in the case of health. And <laughs> they will be tying health into this carbon nonsense also, you can rest assured. And then at the top of the heap, we have the WEF, with its long tentacles in over 150 countries, its 3,800 global young leader plants in governments around the world by their own admission. You see how it all ties in? The WEF can't do this by itself. They can't impose a mandate. But they can suck in these governmental agencies and this UN agency, the WHO, and they can do the dirty work. And where the governments can't do it, business can do the dirty work. 
So what are we to do about this, right? Although some of these names will shock you, and to give them deference, perhaps they're doing it just to see what's going on, I don't know. But here's just a few of the American names on the list. The links are on the website under the WEF link on the rightsideradio.com. Some of these names won't shock you at all, but some of them will. Huma Abedin. Oh, you remember her. You know Hillary Clinton's henchman. Matt Blunt, governor of Missouri. Tom Cotton, that one kind of surprised me, U.S. Senator from Arkansas, Daniel Crenshaw, United States Congress, Texas, 2nd District, Gabrielle Giffords, you know, the anti-gun crowd, her husband is now a senator down there in Arizona, these won't surprise you, Jared Polis, the state of Colorado governor, Uh uh-huh, and Gavin Newsom, state of California governor, and listen, I can go on, but this gives you an idea of the infiltration, so that brings us right back full circle to the rest of the story. What are we going to do? Well, in my mind, it's broken down into four levels, four different plans of action of different magnitudes, intensities, and risk. First of all, the fourth level, the fourth and final level, DEFCON 4, you might call it. And the government knows it, and we all know it, though nobody talks about it, everybody talks around it. And of course, it involves and centers around their desperate wish to try and abolish the Second Amendment. Let's skip the third level because I have a really interesting thing for you to listen to. Let's go to the second level, which is grassroots activism and involvement. We're going to go over this more and more in the next few weeks. Election integrity, what you can do, how to clean house of rhinos and democratic Marxists at your city and your county and your state level. And then the first level is what you can do from your couch. And there's a lot you can do from your couch. And for today, I'm simply going to say, and if this has not been brought home to you over the last number of weeks, and I harped on it last week, then let me harp on it again. Pick up that phone today. Call your state legislatures or your representative or the president of the Senate of your state or the leader of the House of Representatives for your state or the leader of the Republican Party or the minority in your state if it's a blue state and get them going. Light a fire. Number one, SAPA, Second Amendment protection. Number two, no more health mandates. Number three, no more emergency powers except under the strictest and most limited guidelines like, you know, nuclear war. No carbon or other digital IDs or health passports. And get their elections under control. Get rid of the machines. Require hand ballots, hand counting in full visibility and transparent. Require an audit after every election, immediately after the election and before certification. But last but not least, since we know, because I've brought you the history of election fraud, since we know that Democratic Marxists are interested in ballots and not voters, Let's at least, at the very least, get a total of ballots cast precinct by precinct within one hour of the polls closing. So you have a total number of ballots. So new ballots can't be found and new ballots can't be printed and new ballots can't be manufactured once they figure out what they need to win. That is like the first step in controlling the number of ballots Democratic Marxists can conjure up after the fact of the election. Now let's go back to the third level. And the third level I'm going to call passive resistance. You know, when I end this show, I talk about we will not comply and we will join with those 
in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as we do. Well, let me tell you what's happening in the in America, as you'll see in the Rat-a-tat-tat too, and next week's show. What's happening in America is happening around the world. It's particularly happening in Europe, and with great particularity, unfortunately, in Britain. There's a great broadcaster on GBN, Great Britain News, Neil Oliver. I listen to him often. He had a terrific broadcast in November. I think it perfectly summarizes this level three, this third prong of passive resistance. Let's listen to him. People write to me every day to tell me they fear the future. People from all over the world, all ages, all walks of life. I say this, we should not be afraid. If anyone should be afraid, it's our government, the whole of parliament, the state and the establishment. They should be afraid because they are in the wrong, doing wrong things and behaving unforgivably. You can tell they are afraid by the way they keep doing more and more, faster and faster, to make the people poor, cold and hungry. Also demoralised, anxious and fearful about the present, never mind the future. The fear felt by people around the world is the deliberate consequence of the actions of so-called leaders all across the West and beyond. I say again, we should not be afraid. Those plotting and working against us, against our interests, both as individuals and as sovereign states, have no power and no money other than that which we, the people, grant them. They're supposed to use that power and money to protect us, to keep us free and to provide opportunities for those hard-working free people to make happy and successful lives for themselves. Instead, they're working night and day to have us welcome a state of being that is nothing less than digital enslavement. Many of the people who contact me ask, what should we do? How can we fight back? I think about the answers to those questions all the time. Right now, I wonder what would happen if those who are cold in their homes, millions of people, just turned on their heating and turned off their direct debits and standing orders? What would happen if, when the bills came, we all just agreed to toss them on the fire, all of us together? What would happen if millions of us, peacefully acting as one, just stood together in quiet defiance? I could be wrong, but I don't think there's enough cells in the prisons, enough judges to hear the cases. If the system wasn't already broken by them, such actions would break it. What would happen if we all withdrew our money from the banks on the same day? What would happen if we all asked, as we are entitled to, for the cash? The banks don't have the money to meet all those demands, and so presumably they would close their doors. Then what? Would their inability to pay out all that cash be evidence of the fraud that is fiat money? I wonder. More and more strikes are happening. Rail workers, teachers and university lecturers. Nurses next. What about the self-employed who were abandoned for the last two years? They can't strike. What would happen if they withheld their taxes all at the same time? I wonder. I don't have the answers to all of the questions, but I know this much. Even just asking them, airing the thoughts, should make the government, the state, the establishment sit up and pay attention. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The social contract that notion by which we surrender power to the state in return for services and safety is beyond broken. They broke it, not us. Successive governments, not just the present bunch of cardboard cutouts, have over decades knowingly and deliberately betrayed every aspect of that contract. It is null and void and we, the blameless party, are no longer bound by its conditions. We the people, the sovereign people of this country, don't just hold the power, we are the power. 
we loan some of it, a short-term loan, to governments. And those governments are supposed to serve us, do our bidding, never the other way round. We tell them what to do. Hundreds of years' worth of governments have quietly and secretively presided over a financial system that is no more than state-sanctioned fraud. Power to create money out of thin air was put in the hands of an entirely private, unelected, unaccountable business, and this power has been abused to make a tiny group unimaginably rich by enslaving all of us with debt. That system is now on the point of collapse. The West is bankrupt, and governments and bankers are scrabbling to solve a problem. How to subtract every last shekel from the people while still having a handful of wealthy bankers and their enablers left over. Britain has no functioning border against the rest of the world. Hundreds are arriving in this country every day and night, many ferried across the channel by agencies paid for by British taxpayers. British people have to wait longer for health and social care and accommodation to make way for economic migrants with their eyes on a soft touch, who have paid illegal gangs thousands of pounds a head to get here. They send their luggage on ahead and collect it at their hotels. We are at the back of the queue while anyone else from anywhere else is looked after hand and foot. And always the loudest calls are not for stopping it, but for more money and faster processing. I wonder if the illegal immigration isn't just convenient for the state, softening up the citizens for a supposed solution, like digital ID, perhaps, and then borders open once and for all. I wonder. The British people are no longer kept safe by the police force they pay for, Burglaries of properties and assaults on the person are barely investigated, while officers prioritise thought crimes on social media. Uncounted thousands of little girls are abandoned to organised gangs of rapists up and down the country because the state turned a blind eye to the relentless raping of children rather than ruffle community feathers. A tenth of the population is on the waiting list for treatment by the NHS. The National Health Service is not keeping the nation healthy, all this about free at the point of the delivery is about as much use as a magic spell. You can call a lunch a free lunch, but you'll still be left hungry if you can't get into the restaurant. So-called free steaks won't fill you up if you have to wait so long in the queue you starve to death in the meantime. Free becomes another word for something you've heard about but can't have. I say again, though, we have nothing to fear, not if we decide to be unafraid. In many ways, the worst has already happened. We've been shown where we stand in the eyes of the state, which is beneath their contempt. But history tells us we should never underestimate the power of the many. Just over a hundred years ago, during World War I, thousands of workers were pulled into the city of Glasgow to work in the munitions factories. At that time, there wasn't a single council house or flat in the whole of Britain. Private landlords owned 100% of homes for rent. They could and did raise rents as often as they wanted, Tenants either paid up or were evicted. In February 1915, landlords across the city told tenants their rents were going up by as much as 25%. This was against a backdrop of the steeply rising cost of living generally, food scarcity and the rest. There was a war to win, remember, and sacrifices were expected from the people if the enemy was to be defeated. In the case of many homes, the man of the house was away fighting in the war, leaving just women and children into this crisis for poor people stepped Mary Barber, an ordinary Glasgow woman with two children. She and others realised their only hope lay in sticking together. A mass non-payment campaign got underway. 
arrears built up and soon sheriff's officers were turning up to demand back rent or to evict non-payers. But whenever anyone got wind of an eviction, hundreds of women would descend on the address and block the entrance to the home. A Glasgow MP, Willie Reid, described a typical incident, quote, a soldier's wife in Parkhead had an eviction notice served on her with a warning that if she failed to vacate her house by 12 noon, the sheriff's officer would call to enforce it. The strike committee got busy. They instructed every mother in the district with a young child to be there for 11am on D-Day, complete with prams. Long before noon, the close and street were packed with prams and every pram had at least one youngster in it. No raiding party could have got near the house. Moreover, the men of Parkhead Forge and other works in the district decided to down tools at 11.30am and lend a hand if necessary. People began to talk about Mary Barber's army. On the 17th of November, 18 tenants appeared in court for eviction. Tens of thousands of Glasgow people lined the streets outside. In the end, on the 25th of November 1915, rents were frozen at pre-war levels. The Increase of Rent and Mortgage Interest Act 1915 was passed and some elements of it remained in force as late as 1989. I wonder what would happen if all of us opposed to what is going on now came together like those Glasgow women of 1915 and just said no. I wonder. When thinking about that time, I'm reminded of real leaders. I've been talking again this week about Ernest Shackleton, who, when all seemed lost, his ship sunk beneath the Antarctic ice and with nothing but flimsy tents, three little boats and 28 men trapped on the pack ice and depending on him for life itself, he said, well, now we'll go home. Our so-called leaders tell us our lives must be filled with hardship while they warm themselves in centrally heated homes paid for with our taxes and look forward to Christmas parties and food and drink and decorations paid for by all of us. That's not leadership. That's an abusive relationship. Shackleton put himself through every hardship he expected his men to endure. He did it first and for longest. What he asked of them, he did too. He said they should leave behind on the ice anything that would not help keep them alive. So saying, he walked to a hole in that ice and dropped in his gold watch and cigarette case to the bottom of the ocean. He led from the front every step of the way and over nearly a thousand miles of the cruelest sea on earth. And in the end, he got every man home. They called him the boss. He cared not a jot for the comforts of home. Back home once more, he wrote, We had pierced the veneer of outside things. We had suffered, starved and triumphed, groveled down and grasped at glory, grown bigger in the bigness of the whole. He was a leader who saw that it was shared endeavour and shared striving that made all else possible. Our leaders, our leaders would pick our pockets for any gold watches and valuables, before climbing aboard their private jets and flying home, leaving us behind on the melting ice. I say we owe them nothing, not our loyalty and not our obedience. If we continue to comply, we build our own prison around ourselves for their benefit. They've promised us the earth while stealing it from us, raping and pillaging its resources only for their own enrichment. I say again, there's nothing to fear if we have each other. Here's the thing. If we set a course for ourselves and back each other every step of the way, we will cross this ocean of darkness together, all the way. All right, you ready for some rat-a-tat-tat, folks? Ties right in. And boy, we got a lot to cover, so it's going to be quick. Remember, all these articles can be read in depth. Rat-a-tat-tat, family safety, treason... 
the COVID page and a new page, as you'll see why, that we're adding, which is the COVID litigation page. Hold them accountable. So we'll start off with that. You'll find on that page a discourse about why the quote-unquote vaccine companies and the folks who push mandates and the government is 100% liable. There is no immunity whatsoever. This guy is brilliant. It really is exactly what I brought you in prior shows. First of all, to be held not accountable for a vaccine, it has to be a vaccine. And these injections are not by their own admission. And it goes downhill from there. We'll talk more about this in detail next week. Secondly, the first ever COVID litigation conference is next month in Atlanta, March 25th and 26th. Read this article. It'll start giving you the names of legal firms which are getting into what's going to be this trillion-dollar field. They're going to be covering such liability issues as employer mandates, education mandates, medical license attacks, civil rights, fraud, censorship, vaccine injury, hospital negligence, mass torts. It's coming, folks. The dams are breaking. And for those of you who have been injured or know somebody who's injured or who are forced via an illegal mandate, it is time to stand up and hold these people accountable. This is every bit as important as all the other things you're going to do to thwart what the WEF, the WHO, big tech, big corporations, and your government is trying to do to you in terms of making you their surf. If you don't hold these people accountable, they will continue to take the same actions to your material detriment. If you have a claim, stand up. And I might add, you might find it very profitable to boot. Lots of people have written me asking me, what do I think is going to happen with the United States dollar? Well, I think you kind of have a feel for that if you've been listening to On the Right Side Radio. But let me just tell you a little historical fact. Over the course of civilized human existence, there's been 4,800 plus or minus currencies. Only 200 still exist. Need I say more? By the way, as a little sidelight on all this WEF Young Global Leader stuff, do you know who's a graduate of the Young Global Leaders from the WEF? Ah, yes, Zelensky over there in Ukraine. Huh. Another thing you can do to combat the woke crowd, the WEF, and particularly the woke corporations, many of which are stubbing their financial toes after engaging in ESG, is go to SpendingSwitch.com. That is SpendingSwitch.com. These are all small businesses, American businesses, non-woke businesses. Why don't you send money their way rather than into the pocket of your enemies? President Cadaver is never one to disappoint, and on an interview last week with Telemundo, he actually said the Chinese spy balloon was not a major breach. (laughs) That's a quote. And here's another one for you. Look, the total amount of intelligence gathering that's going on by every country around the world is overwhelming, unquote. By the way, in (laughs) in that same interview and then later on, you know, I think they're testing the sound bites. Can we spell PSYOPs, anybody? You know, all those classified documents going all the way back to 1974 when he was a senator, vice president, president, you name it. Oh, it's not his fault. His staff just didn't read the documents carefully. It was their packing blunder, including putting the boxes out there in the garage by the Corvette, you know. A little economic tidbit for you. Corporate bankruptcies in January were the highest since 2010. A word of warning. And remember, 20 to 29% of the companies that exist in America, and for that matter around the globe, are what's called zombie companies. They could only exist in periods of low interest rates. 
They employ a lot of people. Think about what's going to happen. It's pretty easy to put two plus two together. And by the way, talking about PSYOPs, this 6.4% inflation rate, woohoo, down one-tenth from the understated inflation rate of December, 6.5%. Total bogus. Listen, you know this. You've been to the grocery store. You've been to the gas pump. Eggs are up 70% because of the avian swine flu and the destruction, the mandatory destruction of chickens. By the way, what's going on with those two fires in Connecticut, right? Two big chicken farms. Each of them lost 100,000 chickens. And then suddenly there was another one in New Zealand, 70,000 chickens. It's no wonder eggs are 70%. They're up 70%. 8.5% just in January. Other staple food products up 11 to 23%. Listen, shadowstatistics.com is your friend. They're saying inflation right now is over 14%. Unemployment, here's the good news, is down to under 24%. The real numbers, folks, before the government started, should we say, redefining things. You know, like redefining what a recession is. And then the Democrats are kind of shaking in their little fraudulent boots because the 36 million or so that they got from (laughs) that creep who had the FTX crypto fraud going, the bankruptcy trustee for FTX says you're going to have to pay it all back, folks. Huh? Boy, that's worrisome. Although I suppose George Soros and his other buddies from the WEF will step in and cover the losses. What do you think? And then I want to send out a really heartfelt Note of sympathy and empathy for all those poor people in Palestine, Ohio, and the surrounding areas. I mean, what's happened to you folks health-wise, retirement-wise, value-wise in terms of your real estate and your homes and your personal possessions is really unspeakable and unthinkable. And this has not been covered by the mainstream media. Less than 30 minutes of coverage in the last 10 days since February 3rd when it happened by the mainstream media. 30 minutes. Almost not a mention by Butterbutt, our vaunted transportation secretary, or even by Cadaver himself. Why would this be when you have literally a water impact disaster that could affect millions of people downstream? You have clouds of deadly gas, which, by the way, polyvinyl chloride, which was what these trains were carrying, in addition to other chemicals. Did you know what happens when vinyl chloride goes into the atmosphere and when it combines with water turns to hydrochloric acid folks gee i wonder why there's animals dying wildlife dying fish dying you name it this is a disaster of epic proportions i don't know if you know this they've already declared it a superfund site but why aren't they talking about it can you spell psyops let's see you know if you go back a little bit buffett warren buffett is good buddies with obama And they relaxed railway restrictions in 2014. And in addition, you've had scores of terrorist incidents on the railways, gee, not covered by the mainstream media, over the last year or two, including wiring tracks together, which will cause a short circuit and derail trains. You know, if they have to go down the terrorist path, that might lead somebody to where the terrorists coming from, which might lead somebody to the southern border. And if they have to go down the train transport road when they finally do cover this or the government finally admits it that's not too good for closing down pipelines which are a much safer way to transport hazardous material are they not i'm going to have more on this for you next week this is a story we're going to keep covering and my heart goes out to all those poor people and our last rat-a-tat-tat 
chat GPT, right? Everybody's enamored with this AI. Well, guess what? They've run tests on it. Garbage in, garbage out. It seems that it's been programmed by the woke ultra-left. In fact, one study by universities conclusively proved that chat leans left, like way left. For instance, chat refused to write a bill funding construction of the border wall because, quote, it's a controversial topic, unquote. It refused to write legislation that bans abortions. However, it jumped on the request to write a bill banning assault weapons. And how about a bill for legislation to defund U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement? Oh, that was not a problem. But the best one of all, to show you how left this deal is, is it refused to write a poem for Donald Trump. But it jumped at the chance to write a poem for President Cadaver. You know, Joe Biden. Come on, man. And you know what that poem was? I'm not making this up. Quote, a leader with a heart of gold, Joe Biden, a name to hold. With empathy and grace he leads, inspiring all with noble deeds, unquote. So, there's no wonder that there's already a big cry by leftists to get ChatGPT into the classroom to help kids learn and recover from the COVID lockdowns, which, of course, those same leftists created. May I suggest, parents and grandparents, that you firmly resist that? AI is coming, and it's going to be coming fast. You don't need to fight the school board fight and the teacher fight and the woke union fight only to give it all back under the table with a left-leaning AI program that takes over the minds of your kids and grandkids. And we are out of time, always out of time. More next week on Rat-a-tat-tat and lots more on other stuff. Look in the mirror, repeat after me. I will muster, I will stand, I will not comply, I will never give in, I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and across the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Keep the wind at your back. We'll talk to you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side.